This podcast is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following podcast is part three of five of Professor Hanko's series, The Doctrine of the Antithesis. This pertains to the antithesis in the home. Now, let us get on with the subject tonight. It struck me that if an outsider who was not acquainted with our churches would know and witness the number of sermons that are preached, the number of speeches that are made, the number of conferences that are held, the number of books that are published, the number of pamphlets that are made available for distribution, which deal with the subject of marriage and the family, such a person from outside might be tempted to conclude that the institution of marriage and the Christian home are in bad shape in the Protestant Reformed churches. Only if there are profound problems and only if the home is in deep trouble can it be explained that such a large number of pamphlets and books and speeches and sermons are produced on this subject. That is not, however, the case. It is my judgment that there is not a denomination in the world bar none, in which the home and the family is under God's blessing and by God's grace in better shape than in the Protestant Reformed churches. I and my wife have had a great deal of opportunity to talk about these things under different circumstances in different parts of the British Isles on a personal level with people not only but we have had opportunity to speak of these things and discuss them at meetings and conferences. Those who have from other lands visited our churches are dumbfounded at the strength of our marriages and of our Christian homes. Last summer, when the conference was held in Hoddesdon, England and Professor Engelsman and I spoke on the implications of God's covenant in various areas of life. More than one came up to us with a remark, we wish that we had heard these speeches 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. What a difference it would have made in our lives. And so I suppose that the healthy state of homes and families in our churches is due to this vast number of publications and sermons and speeches that act as a wall against the bitter and fierce attacks of the world around us, which is gathering its forces to make its last concentrated attack on the institutions which we discuss tonight. Nevertheless, all of these speeches, all of these sermons, all of these books, 
would have been impossible within the sphere of our churches if it had not been for the fact, I am convinced, that God has given to us the precious heritage of the truth of his covenant. If you would ask me, or if anyone would ask me, what more than anything else is responsible for the strength of Protestant Reformed homes and families, I would say without a moment's hesitation, the great towering doctrines of God's everlasting covenant of grace. When God's people know those doctrines and love them, the result is inevitably strong homes and families. I have, with every speech so far, made a point of it that the antithesis means that God's people in the midst of the world, in every sphere of life, are representatives of God's everlasting covenant of grace, which he establishes through Christ with his elect people in the line of generations. That comes to the fore tonight very, very strongly. Let me say from the very outset that that means that the strength of our homes and our families is due to the wondrous, undeserved mercy and grace of Almighty God who has preserved his covenant with us and with our children. For anyone who is responsible for establishing a covenant home, that truth is a vital truth that not only has theological implications of all sorts, but is of vital importance to such a one personally. When you get as old as I am and you look back on your life, and you look back on the years when your children were home and you taught them, there is only one thought that dominates in your thinking, and that is this. With all my sins, with all my shortcomings, with all my failures, if it were not for the sovereign grace of Almighty God, everything would have ended in disaster. That's the conscious experience of the child of God. God establishes his covenant. God maintains it. If God maintains it, God preserves it among us. How can we ever be thankful enough for that? I also emphasize the fact on more than one occasion that the antithesis is the contrast between light and darkness, the light of the truth versus the darkness of the lie, the light of holiness and godliness and genuine Christian piety in the darkness of sin and unrighteousness. There has not been a time in all the history of the world when the antithesis is as sharp as it is now. The fact of the matter is that the darkness of sin is darker now than it has ever been in the age in which we live. That's not because total depravity can be more total than it was. 
But that's because God has ordained that in the history of the world there is development of sin. Development of sin in every area of life. Development of sin that finally ends in the filling of the cup of iniquity by the ungodly, which makes the wicked world ripe for judgment. As wickedness develops in every area of life, so does the light that shines from God's people, God's covenant people who represent the cause of his covenant in the world, stand in ever sharper contrast, and if I may add, must stand in ever sharper contrast with the evil of the world. The home is the only institution in the whole of the creation which traces its origin directly back to creation. The church we noticed last time is an institution added, added by divine power, by heavenly power, comparable to the invasion of a foreign force into this world of darkness and sin. The institutions of government and the sphere of labor are institutions which developed organically out of the home. God created originally one institution, the home. He created that institution by two creative acts. The first creative act was the creation of man and subsequently of woman, both created in the image of God. That was the creation of a key and indispensable element in the creation of the home. Second act of creation that established the home was what is sometimes called the cultural mandate, especially the first part of it. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. We often take that as an admonition, that God made that admonition to Adam and Eve and subsequent people. It is your calling in the world to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. While that is certainly cast in the form of an admonition, it is nevertheless a part of God's creative work. Just as he said, let the earth bring forth creeping things and so on and so forth. Not by any means an admonition, but a specific and concrete creative word of God, whereby he empowered the earth to bring forth all manner of living things. So, when God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, that was not in the first place merely an admonition, but it was a creative word of God by means of which sovereignly Adam and Eve were empowered 
to have children, a power that would be carried on from them through all subsequent generations. Those two creative acts are responsible for the establishment of the home. A home consists, therefore, of a man and a woman who is his wife and children. That's a home. It's as simple as that. All the other institutions of society, or I should say the other two, because there are only four such institutions, the other institutions, other than the church now, developed out of the family in a kind of an organic way. As men multiplied on the face of the earth, as children were born, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, clans and tribes were the result. In those clans and tribes, as for example in the days of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of the clan, the oldest one, of whom all the other members were descendants, occupied a unique position in the clan. In the first place, he occupied the position of prophet and priest and king. Government had not yet developed. Other institutions of society were as yet unknown as separate individual institutions. The patriarch, the oldest member, was the prophet. He was the priest. He was the king. And as prophet and priest and king, he took his position of authority within the clan. He became also the employer of all his descendants. And he became the magistrate before whom all cases of law, of right and wrong, were brought. His word was decisive. Only a society became complex, increasingly complex, and especially after Babel and the establishment of many nations by the confusion of tongues, did these institutions in society become separate institutions alongside of the family. Now I'm not just saying these things because this is an interesting historical fact, but the simple fact of the matter is that because God created these institutions of society in this way, the home is determinative for the whole of society as far as its moral character is concerned. That is, for good or for bad, all that takes place in the home will sooner or later manifest itself in the other institutions of society. Government, places of employment, the Christian school, the schools which are extensions of the home, and even to a certain extent the church, although I want to come back to that in a moment, receives its moral character, its moral strength or weakness from the home. 
I don't know how many of you read the editorial page in the press. There was an interesting article last night on the editorial page. It was written by a black columnist who was commenting, as a matter of fact, on the fact that the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, had missed the boat entirely in its recent convention. I'm not interested particularly in that now. But she was making the point that the problem in the black community is not, emphatically not, a problem of racism in America. As the NAACP and every other liberal organization would have you believe. The problem, she said, with the prevailing, all-pervasive weaknesses and evils in the black community are due to education and the sorry state of education in the black community. And then she went on to say, with insight that struck me as being wise even from worldly people. The sad state of education in the black community is due to the sad state of the home. None of us could have put it better. She was right on target. The government hides its head in the sand and refuses to acknowledge this. And so as the government surveys the landscape and sees all the problems with violence and crime and the problems of broken marriages, it appoints high-powered blue ribbon committees to study the matter to determine what is the relationship between violence and sex on TV and violence and sex in society at large. And inevitably, these committees, these high-powered blue ribbon committees, of which in my own lifetime there have been at least eight, after spending several hundred million dollars, hand in thousand-page reports in which they solemnly aver that there is no relationship at all between violence and sex on TV and the decay and moral rot in today's society. The problem lies in this. We are not spending enough money on education. And so additional billions have to be spent in building new schools, hiring better teachers, and in some way improving the curriculum with money, and that will solve the problems. But it doesn't work. The government will not, never has and will not address itself to the fundamental problem, the home. If you want to correct the ills in society, there's only one way to do it. And that is ban, absolutely, divorce and remarriage. Imprison adulterers. Punish criminals. 
Go back to capital punishment. But by all means, establish the whole. Then the ills of society will be cured. The world is not going to do that. It isn't going to do that between now and the time when the Lord returns. We know, however, that that is true. And because we know that that is true, it is our calling to be very concerned about and careful in the establishment of covenant homes. There is a kind of a reciprocal relationship between the church and the home. I said that the moral state of the home determines the moral state of society at large and determines all the moral state of all the other institutions that grow organically out of it. But in a certain sense of the word, the same is true of the church. Even a church cannot rise morally any higher than the moral standards of the home. That's simply because of the fact that a church, while it has other characteristics about it, is fundamentally and at bottom the gathering of believers and their seed. That's what the church is. When the church comes together on the Lord's Day, it comes together under the authority of the elders. It comes together to hear the word proclaimed by an ordained minister, but it is constituted of believers and their seed. And because the church is constituted of believers and their seed, the moral strength of believers and their seed will determine inevitably the moral strength of the church. On the other hand, however, the family could not exist as a covenant family without the church. It itself is dependent upon the church. It is dependent upon the church because it is through the preaching of the gospel as the primary means of grace and the rule of the elders appointed as such by Christ that steel is put in the spines of parents to withstand the deadly influences of the world about them. It is through the preaching of the word that the scriptures are unfolded and all the divine truths from the beginning of the scriptures to the end which bear directly on the life of the people of God in their homes and families are unfolded and applied to their hearts by the Spirit. The wonderful part, and I find that very wonderful, the wonderful part of the relation between covenant homes and the church is this, that they depend upon each other. The one gets its strength from the other, and the other determines the character of the one. The church is God's covenant people, the home is a manifestation of God's covenant. Now the very fact that the home is the manifestation of God's covenant means that our homes approach what they ought to be according to the standards of Scripture only when our homes 
approximate in so far as possible in this sinful world God's own covenant. Any child of God who is interested in establishing a home that is a genuinely, and notice the terminology we use, a genuinely covenant home, holding a covenant family, can be what it ought to be only when it reflects and only in so far as it reflects God's own covenant. It has been said, and rightly so, God is a family God. I mean, in himself, in his own triune covenant life, he is a family God. Father and Son and Holy Spirit binding them together in an eternal, unchangeable bond of love and fellowship. There are, therefore, two distinct ways in which a covenant family reflects God's covenant life that he lives in himself. When the fall came, shortly after the creation of Adam and Eve, the fall implanted in the covenant home that God had established in paradise, a deadly seed that fundamentally destroyed the family. How terrible that was is only becoming manifest in our day. But it was there from the beginning, from the moment of the fall. When God rescues the institution of the family from the ruin and chaos of the fall by the power of his grace in Jesus Christ. He doesn't bring the family back to its pristine beauty and perfection that existed before the fall, which would have been marvelous in itself, but he takes the institution of the family and he lifts it up higher than it's ever been before and makes of the family something which it never was nor never could be in paradise, something more beautiful, more wonderful, more blessed, more glorious, because by the power of his grace in salvaging the family from the wreckage that sin wrought, he makes the family a reflection of his own covenant of grace that he lives in himself as the triune God. He does that in two ways. He does that, first of all, by making marriage, as you recall, a necessary and indispensable part of a home, a picture of Christ and the church. I said once in a speech, that I was asked to make at the marriage of a young couple from one of our congregations, that it was a severe temptation to me that had to be resisted to make marriage a sacrament. I know it is not. 
I know that Rome errs when it numbers marriage among the sacraments. And you need not fear that I'm ever going to agitate by way of gravamina to synod to declare marriage a sacrament. The fact of the matter is, nevertheless, that as redeemed in Christ, the institution of marriage comes very close to being a sacrament. And it comes very close to being a sacrament because it pictures in a unique way, in a way not possible anywhere else in God's world, what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. There's something mysterious, something awesome, something beyond explanation in Paul's statement concerning marriage in Ephesians 5, that a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. This, says Paul, is a mystery, but it's the mystery of Christ and his church. I'm not going to go into that this evening. That will take us too far astray. That's a salvaging of the wreckage of marriage in a way that transforms marriage to something which it never has been and could not be prior to the fall. It's a reflection of God's covenant with his people. That's, by the way, let me just say this by way of parentheses. If you do not have a firm grip on the truth of the covenant, and if you do not have a firm grip on what that truth means, that is, that marriage is a reflection of God's relationship to his people. I understand very well why you introduce into the church divorce and the remarriage of divorced people. I understand that. You can't maintain the truth concerning marriage. You can't understand the words of the Lord when he prohibits the remarriage of divorced people without having a very clear grasp of the truth of God's covenant. And I know from my own experience that that is fundamentally the problem in our sister churches in Singapore. They do not understand the doctrine of the covenant. And so they see the possibility of divorce and the remarriage of divorced people. If you believe and love understandingly the truth of the covenant, you can't speak of the remarriage of divorced people. It is so totally out of keeping with the reality of which it is a picture that it becomes a monster, a monstrosity. And as a matter of fact, such a monstrosity that it destroys 
the truth that the covenant is reflected in marriage. In the second place, the covenant family is a reflection of God's covenant because a family is a reflection of God's covenant. Not only marriage, but a family. Just as within the Trinity, the covenant life which God lives in himself is an eternal union of fellowship, life, and love with its resultant joy, so is a covenant family, parents and children, a union of fellowship, love, life, and subsequent joy. The closer our homes approach that of which they are a picture, the more nearly they measure up to what the scriptures require of us in our homes and families. I know from experience, as many of you do, that when father and mother are gathered around the table with five or six or more children, and everyone is grabbing for his or her food, and some of the children are kicking each other under the table, and they are complaining fiercely about the fact that they don't like beans, and why in the wide world does mother cook this this way, that you shake your head and you say, not much reflection of God's covenant here. There are times when my wife and I sat at the table with our children, when we tottered on the brink of anarchy, because of all that was taking place at the same time, you couldn't keep up with it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not only is family life the closest we can come to what God's covenant is all about in the family of God, but it has all the sweetness and all the joy and all the blessedness too that is ours as members of God's family. I want to come back to that, but I want you to understand now already that if our homes and families are in this world of sin and darkness to be lights shining for all to see, the only way that will be realized is when our homes and families reflect as much as possible in this sinful world God's covenant with us. There are many threats in the world about us today. You know, I was thinking, let me say this for a moment, I was thinking this afternoon The devil has got to be some kind of a fool. I hope he hears what I'm saying too, because I think he ought to be reminded of this. If ever 
There is a way to be successful in establishing here in the world the kingdom of darkness, which the devil would love to establish. The way to do it is not to destroy the home. That's the way to chaos. That's the way to anarchy. That's the way to disaster for society in general. And the devil, above all others, ought to know that. He, he's got enough brains to understand that. He's a veteran of 6,000 years of experience. And he ought to be able to see that the most foolish, the most stupid thing he can do is destroy the home. If he wants to realize his own sinful dreams. And yet that's exactly what he goes about doing. I'm convinced that the only reason why he is so intent on destroying the home is because his hatred of God is so intense, so blinding, so utterly dominating in his life that he wants to destroy everything God has made and turn it to his own use. And so, dreaming of some utopia that can be built on the ashes of a destroyed home, he pursues his evil course. But the church is in the way, you see, and the church is still intent on maintaining the truth of Scripture with regard to the home, not only, but the church is intent on maintaining covenant families as a part of the church. And so the church has to be pushed out of the way in order for the institution uh, the institutions of society to come completely under the rule of Satan. There is being launched in our day an attack, a skillful, well-coordinated, well-planned attack to destroy completely the institution of the home. We might just as well face it that from a certain point of view, the devil's going to succeed in his purposes as well. There's coming a day when there will no longer be in this world of sin homes as we know them now. There was an interesting article in the press tonight, I think it was tonight, I'm sure it was tonight, that the divorce rate is dropping dramatically in America. Whereas one or two years ago, 50 or 55 percent of marriages were ending in divorce, that percentage has decreased significantly. And one, often, one almost says, well, praise the Lord. But then the next paragraph explains the reason why. And the reason why divorces are on the decrease is simply because more and more people aren't getting married. They live together, they have children together, but they're not getting married. They're cohabiting, so the press says, cohabiting. 
When I was a child, my father, in warning against that, said, they're shacking up. But that's too crude an expression, I guess. That's one way in which marriage is being destroyed. How much easier, how much less hassle if it doesn't work out the way you wanted it to work after living together a certain number of times, a certain length of time, go your own way. And so the press was proud to say that the divorce rate was declining significantly because more and more people weren't bothering about getting married. And this all has legal sanction, you see. Well, that's bad enough, and while that's a travesty of everything Scripture says about marriage and a destruction of the home, more evil is the homosexual agenda, which is powerful in this country. While only what we would call a small fraction of the population in America is in favor of homosexuality, they wield an influence far, far beyond their numbers. And they do that because they are aggressive, because they are bold, but above all because they have the media on their side, and because the court system in America is sympathetic to their agenda, and liberal woolly-headed judges who don't know right from wrong any more than a kindergarten student knows it, make laws in our land, taking power away from the legislatures, and so legally sanctioning the terrible evil of homosexuality. The result of it is that one-sex, single-sex marriages are becoming the thing of the day. Now, if this was limited to the world, it wouldn't be so bad. But the simple fact of the matter is that almost all the churches in America, with very few exceptions, have on their agendas the problem of homosexuality. The Reformed Church in America dealt with it in its synod this past summer. And it dealt with the question of homosexuality because the president of one of their seminaries, New Brunswick Seminary in New Jersey, had married his daughter in a single-sex marriage. The board of trustees had fired him. He appealed to the Senate of the RCA to be reinstated on the grounds that homosexuality was legitimate and not contrary to the scriptures and that single-sex marriages received the approval of God. It was something of a wonder that the Synod had sufficient strength to maintain the decision to fire him and even to suspend him from the office of the ministry. But the most recent issue of the Church Herald, which is the church paper of the RCA, is filled with the approval of the editor of the paper with a violent attack against that decision of the Senate, which guarantees, of course, that the matter will be up at a Synod later. That's the Reformed Church of America. And so it is. 
It is my judgment that America and Canada and Europe today are worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, upon whom God rained fire and brimstone. At least in Sodom and Gomorrah, there were not single-sex marriages, although homosexuality was endemic in the city and a terrible, terrible plague. When it becomes legal, then the institution of marriage is threatened by the law of the land. And so it is. Already in Canada, some ministers have been hailed into court because in their preaching they have condemned homosexuality. And it has been openly and publicly and repeatedly stated in the liberal media that any opposition to homosexuality can be subject to legal penalties because of hate laws. Laws that have been adopted by legislatures throughout the country prohibiting hatred of others on the grounds of religion, sex, national origin, and all the rest. The church is, is going to be confronted, therefore, with the option, are we going to preach against homosexuality and wind up in prison, or are we going to clamp our lips shut in the interests of escaping persecution? I hope and pray that the church and our ministers make the right decisions. Those are some of the vicious attacks against the institution of marriage. Equally, attacks are being made against the family. There are liberals in this country today who openly state the age of the family is past. We must not talk any longer in terms of families. We live in a free society where everyone is equal, where everyone has his or her rights, the old institutions of marriage and the family are out of date, not suitable for the 20th century, something that must be erased from the lives of people in this country, uh, and then we will be truly free. Now, I'm not so much interested in all of that tonight. You all know the dangers and you all know the threat of persecution which all of these efforts to destroy the family contain in them. But I am more interested in how the forces that are loose today in our land threaten our own homes. Now to get back to the subject, there are, in my judgment, some things in our own lifetime and prevalent in our own homes and families which I consider to be threats to our covenant homes, serious threats. I'm going to mention them briefly, I'm only going to mention a few. The list can be extended, you're able to do that yourself. The world has a way of getting into our homes and families 
with its insidious propaganda and its vicious attack on covenant homes. It has a way of doing that through the radio, through television, through the internet, and through its incessant blaring propaganda. I consider these serious. I want you to consider them also with me as serious. Television is an enemy on the whole of covenant families. Malcolm Muggeridge, a English journalist who died about a decade ago, wrote a book entitled The Fourth Temptation. Among other things in that book, and he's talking particularly about religious television broadcasting, but he covers the whole area of television, he makes this astounding remark. He says, television is in its very nature being the kind of instrument it is, is incapable under any circumstances of telling the truth as it is revealed to us in Scripture. He makes this to religious television broadcasts. You can imagine that some of them must have lost their false teeth. I don't think that's quite true. I think Malcolm Muggeridge, in the interests of making a point, has exaggerated the point. I can conceive of it. If the medium of television was in the hand of Calvinistic, reformed Christians, that television could become a powerful educational tool. Be that as it may, the fact is it's not in the hands of reformed Christians. It has become an instrument of insidious, subtle propaganda. Let me give a few instances of it. If a woman, and I have used this figure before, if a woman who commonly appears on television in ads to sell Toyotas, or in ads to promote cruises in the Caribbean, should appear at your front door and enter your home dressed the way she was on television, using the language she did on television, flaunting her femininity and her sexuality, saying the things which she says on television, you would not tolerate her presence in your home for two minutes. You would open the door and you would tell her in no uncertain terms, get out! And yet, you let her have the floor in your home. And you don't do anything about it. And you do it in the presence of your children. And it doesn't bother. That's only one example. If there is a sexual revolution in this country, and if this country is finally going to adopt a totally homosexual agenda and a free-for-all life, free-for-all from the restraints and chains of marriage, all you have to do is watch television programs. 
It's all there. Sex is in every scene. When I see even an ad on television of some of the programs that are being programmed these days, I can't help but think of the passage in Genesis that describes the world prior to the flood. And the whole earth was full of violence. And so it is today. Violence in Iraq, violence in Afghanistan, violence in London, violence in the home, violence on the streets, violence in the cities, violence in the countryside. The whole world today is full of violence. Promoted, encouraged, described in detail by the medium of television. And, and I'm fully aware of the fact that not all our people agree with me on this. For me, I, I don't really care if they do or not. We have lost one battle in our churches because of television. And that's the battle against drama, the battle against movies. As far as I can tell, that battle is lost. Nothing is going to harm in the long run our covenant homes more than losing battles of such significance and importance. The internet is becoming an increasing danger. The internet, which according to one estimate that I recently saw somewhere, has no less than one million pornographic sites, easily accessible, easily accessible not only by adults, but by children six, seven years old, which is not surprising. My six-year-old grandchild knows more about computers than I do. Easily accessible. And you ought not to kid yourself, pornography on the internet is a serious problem in our churches. There is one evil of our age which to my mind is more has more power to erode the, the covenant home and its true spiritual character than anything else. And that's the spirit, the wild spirit of materialism that grasps our people as well as the world. I was struck by that. I was struck by that last Sunday. I think it was last Sunday. No, it couldn't have been. It must have been a weekday because it came through the mail. A letter from Covenant. A letter from Covenant telling us that Covenant, after its drive, still had a deficit of about, I think, $28,000, something like that. And I thought to myself, here is the whole of Kenton, Ottawa County, supporting Covenant Christian High, the sale of a couple jet skis, or the sale of just one fifth wheeler, or the sale of just one SUV, or medium-priced automobile, would in itself pay for the deficit. And we can't bring up the money. That speaks volumes. 
that speaks volumes about what in our judgment is more important. The reformed education which our children received in Covenant Christian High, which has meant so much to our churches, or our toys. We don't seem to hesitate at all in making the choice. The toys are the things. Materialism has its cold hands on our throats and on the throat of our covenant homes. Another battle, if you will, which we have lost is mothers working outside the home. We've lost that battle. Ministers have told me they don't dare to preach against it from the pulpit. I don't know why they don't dare. They don't dare because the storm they create in the congregation rises in fury against the least suggestion that mothers, covenant mothers, work outside the home or in the home, but with so much intensity, occupying so much of their time that their families take second place. Not only do we need a three-week or four-week vacation in the summer these days, but it seems like we need one in the winter. And the teachers in the grade schools and high schools are hard-pressed to keep the children in school until Christmas vacation actually arrives because the families want to go here and there, south and east and west, for vacations in the winter. To a year has become a necessity, oftentimes away from the church. The spirit of materialism is so strong among us that we willingly spend and eagerly spend and foolishly spend huge quantities of money on sports and other activities that we enjoy while the schools have all they can do to meet the expenses of another year. Now don't get me wrong, it is a magnificent job from a certain point of view that our families perform when our little denomination is capable of supporting some 14 or 15 Christian schools plus a mission program plus all the expenses of a seminary and many other projects. In comparison with the world, yes. But who cares about the world? If our, our amount of giving is only much better than the world's, have we gained anything? Have we walked then on the road to heaven? Have we set our feet upon the narrow way? Far, far from it. Our priorities are wrong. God has given us oodles of money, every one of us. We don't know what to do with it all. But our Christian stewardship leaves much to be desired. That is the spirit of the age that will bring disaster upon the home if we are not saved 
from disaster by the grace of Almighty God. And it seems to me sometimes, especially when I examine my own heart, that the only way the Lord can save us is to take everything away so that we learn to depend upon Him. What are you going to do when Antichrist comes? What are you going to do with your children whom you have taught to give in to every pleasure which the world can bring? Whom you have taught to spend money like a drunken sailor? When the stark choices of Antichrist are there, take the mark of the beast or starve. What do you think your children are going to do? If you haven't taught them what it means to manifest in the world, in the life of the home, the principles of Christian stewardship. But I haven't all that much time left. I want to be positive. The life of the antithesis in the home is a life in which the child of God says no to the world. And yes to the things of God. There are two, two points I want to make especially. The first point is this. That our homes, if they are to reflect in a positive way, the riches of God's everlasting covenant of grace are orderly homes where each in the home occupies his or her God-given place. The father is the prophet and the priest and the king. He has to fulfill that role or a covenant home falls to pieces, disintegrates. He has to teach as a prophet. He has to be the intercessor for his family as a priest. He has to rule in the name of Christ or the home will be destroyed. At the same time, a wife is a prophetess in the office of believers and a priestess and a queen. That's her role. Subject to the king, her husband, but in her own right, a believer and an office bearer in the home and family. The home has to be a home where the fundamental principles and the rich joy and the blessedness of marriage seeps into the souls of the children, as it were, by osmosis. All the teaching in the world isn't going to affect our children unless what we say to them is backed up by the example of our lives. That's our calling, first of all. The same thing is true with the children. You know, each child has his own place in the family, a place that no other child can fill. I was in a home once where the parents understood these things. And the parents had so established that 
the, the order in the home that the eldest son had a position of preeminence in the home. He had privileges that did not belong to the other children. Some were just symbolic privileges. He in the living room, for example, had a chair next to the father that was his on the right hand of the father. And while others might sit there, if the oldest one came into the room, the others moved so that he could sit there. And that was symbolic of the position he occupied in the family as the eldest son, upon whom fell, on behalf of the parents, the responsibilities that were part of his privileged position among his brothers and sisters. He was responsible not only for helping them with their homework, perhaps, with whatever help they may have needed, but he was responsible for, for holding before them perpetually in all of his conduct a moral example of uprightness and godliness and Christian piety. That was his responsibility. And presently, when his parents became old, he became the one that was responsible even for the care of his parents, first of all. While all the children would necessarily take a part in it, he was the one upon whom the primary responsibility fell. I don't think I was ever so surprised in my life as when all of a sudden, one day, it dawned on me that I, who had always looked to my father for leadership, for advice, for counsel, and whom I had always respected, even when I became much older, all of a sudden became the one who was responsible for him, who had to make decisions for him, who had to tell him what to do. The role was so totally unfamiliar that it took me months to get used to the responsibilities that devolved upon me as the oldest one in the family. And to this day, now that our parents are gone, the decisions that have to be made with respect to my sister, for example, are decisions that fall upon me, although the other family members, of course, take their part. That's because of the fact that in the covenant of God, Jesus Christ is our elder brother, the oldest, in a far higher way than an elder brother can ever be in a family, because he is the one who is the mediator of the covenant. He is the first begotten of the dead. He is the one through whom the covenant is established. But he is our elder brother. We are brothers and sisters subject to his authority. That must be reflected in a covenant home. And then each child in that home occupies his or her own place. And when each occupies his or her own place, which no one else can occupy, you have a life of richness and fellowship in the home that is incomparable. You have a unity, a union, a fellowship of love, of life. You establish a home which is a haven in the storms of life, where the members of the family can come, weary of being tossed about on the stormy seas of this present time, 
battered by the opposition which they face in the world. Home at rest with those who are part of the family, who know me, who love me, who will listen to my sorrows, who will rejoice with me in my victories, and whose burdens I can share when they come to me. Many years ago, there was a girl who attended Hope School who were on her way home from school, frequently went past our home and stopped. And she always used as her excuse that she had to talk with me about some problems she had. Would I please take her in the study and talk with her? Which I did. She never had anything really significant to talk about. And the whole thing began to puzzle me. She would sometimes stay for a long time until finally my wife would say to her, do you want to stay for, for dinner? Oh yes, I would like that. Well, you better call home and say to your parents that you're here for dinner. Puzzled by it, I pondered it over and over again. And one day I said to her, you don't like to go home, do you? And she burst out in tears and she said, no, I don't want to go home. Now, I consider that one of the greatest tragedies that life can hold. It's common in the world. Latchkey children. But in the church, here's a child that doesn't want to go home, spends all her time not going home. Dreadful, dreadful beyond description. What man, when he's finished with his day's work, can't wait to get home and has all kinds of things he wants to tell his wife about what happened during the day and can't wait to hear what his children have to say about what took place at school. Sometimes the chaos at our table in the evening mealtime was the chaos that was generated by children who couldn't wait their turn to tell us about all that had transpired at school that day. And it took an iron hand to have each speak from the oldest to the youngest or youngest to the oldest, taking his or her own turn. We're home. This is where we want to be. Just as every child of God in the family of God who lifts up his eyes and sees beyond the skies a house of many mansions that Christ his brother has prepared for him says, I want to go home, home. And when finally he's there, what else does he say but, ah, this is home, this is is home. So it must be in our covenant homes. And in order that we may accomplish that goal, where there is in the family and the unit of the family a fellowship of life and love with covenant children, we teach our children, we teach our children what makes our home Christian and what someday 
will make their homes Christian covenant homes. There are so many things to teach them. What I'm concerned about is that we understand that this teaching involves not in the first place verbal instruction so that we set our children down on the other side of the table and say to them, tonight the lesson is about Christian stewardship. I'm going to lay before you the principles of Christian stewardship. No! That's not Deuteronomy 6 where the law of God has to be written on our doors and on our gates and on our fence posts. It's the, it's the teaching of an example that we are Christian stewards. We don't take our children aside in order to instruct mothers daughters in what it means to be a mother. But godly mothers in the home live as godly mothers, happily, cheerfully, willingly, faithfully, knowing that their place is the place that God has given them in his mercy. And daughters learn what it means to be a mother. Devotions are the critical part. My father tells me when his father had to get to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, the children got hauled out of bed at 5.30 because my grandfather on my father's side insisted that it was impossible for the children and parents in a covenant home to walk in the fear of the Lord that day unless they began the day together with devotions. Every day, seven days a week, without fail. It's almost impossible to keep families together about the table these days, long enough to have devotions. Dad, read Psalm 117. I've got basketball practice. Dad, I won't be, Mom, I won't be home for supper tonight because my job requires that I'm here over dinner hour. All kinds of efforts on the part of the forces of materialism to rob our homes of their genuine spiritual character. And then, what I consider to be one of the most important things that we can possibly teach our children is their relationship to the church of Jesus Christ and to the causes of God's kingdom. In a covenant home, the church is not on the periphery. The church is not a Sunday go-to-meeting place. The church is not something to which we pay our dues once a week. The church is at the heart of the Christian life. The whole life of a covenant family revolves around the welfare of the church and the consciousness of the fact that if the church loses its power, where will the covenant home receive its spiritual strength to manifest God's covenant in the world? The father and the mother are devoted to the church. The church comes first. The church is our life. The church is our mother. 
our spiritual mother who bore us at whose breasts we are nourished, whose food is provided by Mother Church. The church disciplines us so that we walk in the ways of God. Our life depends on the church. What are you going to do? Live as if the church means nothing to you except perhaps for six hours or so on Sunday? Oh no. But if the church is not central to us in our life, it never will be to our children. If vacations can drag us away from the church, if financial considerations force us to give the church a secondary place in our lives, if the church means nothing more to us than sitting in a pew a couple of times on the Lord's Day, if the welfare of the church is so unimportant to us that we are hard-pressed to give an account of what the church believes and why we belong to the church that we do, what kind of a generation of children do we think we are going to bring up when the church becomes hard-pressed by the enemy and struggles to maintain itself in a wicked and godless world bent on its destruction? A covenant church. A covenant home holds high the church of Jesus Christ and insists that the children do likewise. Those are some of the things which I see slipping. I will end where I started. God has, in the riches of his grace and mercy, in spite of countless sins which are woven into the warp and woof of our lives, preserved us as a church and preserved our covenant homes. Don't you think they are worth fighting for? Don't you think that the meager sacrifices we have to make that our homes may be preserved are worth it? Don't you think that the salvation of our children and grandchildren depend upon our faithfulness in our homes Then join with me and with each other in vowing before God we will do what we can by his grace depending upon the power of his covenant to make our homes more and more what they ought to be. May God grant it. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, 
and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.